Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. This episode is from the years 2014 through 16, when the series was called Childhood, History and Critique. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Childhood, History and Critique. I'm Pat Ryan, and this time I have a conversation with Peter Kelly, Associate Professor at Armit School of Education with campuses in Melbourne and Bandura, Australia. Peter is a social theorist and an internationally recognized leader in critical youth studies. He is the author and editor of too many books to list, but they are the result of his sustained interest in youth transitions, in families at work, within peer cultures, and the ways these transitions are being remade under globalization. Three of his recent books include The Self as Enterprise, Foucault and the Spirit of 20th Century Capitalism, from Grauer Publishing. Smashed, The Many Meanings of Intoxication and Drunkenness, from Monash University Publishing, and a recent collection edited with Annalise Camp, entitled of Critical Youth Studies for the 21st Century, from Brill. In this conversation, we learn a little bit about Peter's academic background and interests. We discuss the collection of Critical Youth Studies for the 21st Century and the conference he is convening with others in Melbourne this December, entitled Young People and the Politics of Outrage and Hope. Later in the interview, I asked Peter to help me make sense of incidents that I wrote about in my accompanying essay such as the pepper spraying of Paul Slosher in a main prison in 2012 and the use of cage fighting as a disciplinary measure at a Dallas public high school a decade earlier. Peter introduced the concept of wicked problems. We reflected generally on how the idea of wicked problems can help us understand and rethink the challenges facing young people broadly today. We recorded this conversation in May 2015. I hope you find it as thought-provoking as I did. Take care. Hello, Peter. Patrick. Are you in Bandura right now? Uh, no, I'm actually at my home in, um, in East Melbourne. I, um, the campus, the, the university has a couple of campuses. It has one at uh, Bandura and one in the city, right in the city centre, and I'm working in there later on this afternoon. So most of the population in Australia must live around uh, sort of the, the fringe of the continent, in a sense, and a lot of it in the we south. Do. We do. We, we cling to the coastline. Much like well, in, in Canada, 80% of the population lives within about, uh, oh, I don't know what it is, 100 kilometres of the U.S. border. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all... So, I mean, there's vast, vast areas of coastline that are uninhabited because just so isolated. And then there's the interior, and then it's the east coast, um, down from 
Brisbane down through Sydney, Melbourne, across to Adelaide. So, well, someday I hope to be able to visit, but I have not yet been uh, to Australia or New Zealand. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, we, we we tend to travel much more readily than uh, North Americans and/or Europeans. I've just come back from just come back from five weeks away, where I was had time in New York and. Uh, London and Journal of Youth Studies Conference in Copenhagen. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was there was some talk about the, the next Journal of Youth Studies Conference being in Australia and everybody was complaining how far it would be and how much it would cost to get there. And they were having conversations with Australians who'd just done the trip <laughs> the opposite way. Exactly. It must be hard but, to hear. Well, I, I think that actually could come up for, with our society. I don't know this for sure, but... Uh, We've, we've made a habit of trying to get around to different places. And, uh, that's one of the things that come up. The bulk of our membership is in North America. But if you're going to be international, you have to be international. Otherwise, you're just North American. Exactly. And, and, and in an area of childhood and the history of childhood, one of the reasons that we, well, we think about ourselves is that this is an international topic, a global topic. So, but it's hard to walk that walk sometimes. Uh, it can talk that talk us. It stretches you. It stretches you to, to be able to follow through. Well, Peter, thank you for, for, um, uh, being, you know, willing to sit down with me today. Tell us about yourself and your intellectual interests and, and your academic background. No, well, thanks for, for the opportunity. I, uh, came to the academy late. I was a 30 year old before I went to university as a mature age student. And uh, my first undergraduate degree was a primary teaching degree, but was also a, um, what you might call a liberal arts degree. And I developed an interest in research and issues to do with children and young people. On completing that degree, decided to follow on the trajectory of uh, an honours degree, which in Australia is prep for a PhD, uh, enrolled in a PhD, did some some youth work, uh, for local government during that time and had the opportunity of my undergraduate degree at, at Deakin University in Geelong at that time where there was a lot of uh, internationally renowned scholars in uh, the field of, of education and feminism and postmodernism and poststructuralism, people like Jane Kenway, uh, Bill Green, a number of other people that might be known in, in those sorts of circles. So I thought, you know, it was, a, it was actually a really interesting and challenging introduction to some of the, the things interested me outside of those academic frameworks and the academic frameworks and training provides a, or enables you to develop a vocabulary to make sense of things that you might be interested in anyway, in, in different ways. So I've, in the period since, from the end of the 1990s, start of the 2000s, worked in... Uh, the field of youth studies, sociology of youth, uh, an interest and concern with the ways in which young people's identities are governed and regulated mm-hmm. in an increasingly globalised world uh, through various ideas, particularly ideas of, of risk and, and young people being at risk in those contexts. What are they at risk of? What are they at risk of not becoming? So I've worked in that space for the last decade or so, published around those those issues and, and worked with a, a number of theoretical ideas that come from Foucault's work on the ethics and care of the self and governmentality and the way that's been taken up in a number of areas. 
more sociologically, the work of Giddens and, and Beck and Sigmund Bauman, thinking about reflexive modernization and, and liquid life, if you like. One of your works that I sat down with in the last uh, week was a critical youth studies for the 21st century. Perhaps you could say a little bit about critical youth studies and, and this, this collection. So, so the collection grew, oh, it's a 35-chapter edited collection that um, <clears throat> took about three years to put together and it uh, invited, it was an open call, uh, invitation for expressions of interest that circulated through a variety of uh, networks like the International Sociology Association and a number of other places in this, uh, North America. And so we've got contributors from what we call old and new Europe, the UK, um, North America, South America, uh, Australia, New Zealand, the Asia Pacific. And the challenge that my colleague and I, my colleague Annalise Kant from, uh, she's currently at Dublin City University in Ireland, the challenge that we were working with at that point in time was to think what critical might mean beyond maybe an easy reference to the Frankfurt School or ideas about critical theory that might come from that context. Uh, what critical might mean after Marxism, after post-structuralism, after postmodernism, in terms of the sorts of work that intellectuals might do when they take young people as, as the object of their study. We tried to situate that in the context of the, the universities that most of us work in, a neoliberal, uh, managerialist, competitive higher education environment that imagines research as being about impact or about relations with external stakeholders or a variety of other things that might possibly change what critical meant. Mm -hmm. And we were also trying to see in that context, if, if that's a context in which we do our work, and there are some significant issues with that context in which we do our work in the contemporary university, if young people are of concern and interest when we do that work, what sorts of things are we concerned about and or interested in uh, exploring. So we set up a number of points that people might respond to, uh, thinking about uh, globalisation, education, poverty, marginalisation. And that came out of a sense that when people talked about doing critical work, there probably wasn't necessarily uh, a shared sense of what critical meant in that context. And we didn't want to impose another orthodoxy in saying that you know, if critical looks like this, we wanted to open up the space that people could imagine working in if they talked about doing critical work in this space. You know, one of the ways we drew uh, on, on the work that enables us to think about that was to think about what Sigmund Bauman said critical was. He, he understood critical. Uh, Bauman, for those who don't know, a uh, Polish sociologist, but has worked in the UK for the last 30, 40 years, incredibly influential. I'm not so sure about in the States, but certainly in Europe and, and in Australia. And he talked about uh, critical, not being an orthodoxy, not being a particular school of thought, but being more about a disposition or an ethos to thinking about the world as it is and how it might be other than as it is. And I think all the contributors in that in that collection, depending on the ways in which they approach, whether they're more concerned about the theoretical discussion or some methodological issues working with young people or working with issues about education or transition or sexuality or whatever, Sometimes more explicitly, sometimes more implicitly, that was what shaped their contribution. That, so there's an agenda of change 
embedded in that collection. But change that doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily have in mind an endpoint. You know, lots of the work that, that, that was done in there it is a starting point in some respects for, for further work, for further thinking, for further ways of engaging with young people. And, and and again, part of what it is to be critical in this context for me is embedded in a concern with having encountered some dogmatism about what critical is, unless you're theoretically pure and your politics is explicit then you can't call yourself critical. Yeah. One of the things that I want to work with is the idea of ambivalence. And Sigmund Bauman, again, being really influential there, a number of books from the early, late 80s, early 90s, a book called Modernity and Ambivalence, and a book called uh, The Holocaust and Modernity. And one of the things that Bauman argues is that ambivalence is a fundamental feature, characteristic of the human condition. The idea of choice, for instance, uh, makes no sense unless there are choices to make, things to choose from. If you have things to choose from, then you're confronted with ambivalence. What's the right choice? Risk makes no sense yeah. unless you understand that there are options, other options and possibilities. If there are other, other options and possibilities, what are the right choices? What are the right options and possibilities? Confronted with ambivalence. Our whole lives are shaped by ambivalence. None of us is certain. Uh, or shouldn't be anyway, <laughs> about a whole variety of things in our lives. And Bauman argued that the history of modernity is a history of an attempt or of multiple attempts to exterminate ambivalence, to remove ambivalence from our lives. And social science has played a key role in that, you know, come up with the right formula, the right methodology, the right theory, the right concept, the right idea, then we'll solve, solve whatever problem it is that we're, we're working with or encountering. And I think a lot of critical theories have been a bit like that. Come the revolution, you know, history will end. If we only do this, this and this, problem will be solved. For me, yeah. <laughs> life isn't like that. We're confronted with ambivalence and have to make our way through a life that is fundamentally ambivalent. So how, in that context, do we think about you know, children and young people, the experiences that shape their lives, their families' lives, to do that in a way that acknowledges, even embraces that ambivalence without trying to exterminate. Is part of this opening a door to accept human ambivalences, acknowledging that we might not be able to create the outcomes that we want, but even more than that, it won't be clear to ourselves exactly what it is that we want. Yeah, yeah look, I, I agree. I, when, when you were talking there, I was reminded of a quote from Foucault who talked about his argument was that when people said, you know, what's your politics in terms of the way that you, you know, think about power, you think about discourse, power is everywhere, discourse is everywhere, there's no outside, you know, what can we do? Mm-hmm. One of the things that he argued was that not everything is bad, but that everything is dangerous. And if everything is dangerous, then there's always work to do. And so... In that frame, he talked about his position was about a, a, a hyper and pessimistic activism. You don't stop acting. You don't stop thinking. You don't stop trying to imagine the world other than, the, than it is. But there's a recognition that even if you imagine the world should be other than it is, you don't necessarily have the tools and knowledge or the certainty or the lack of ambivalence that might be appropriate in a given context and a given intervention in, in your attempt to 
do something for disadvantaged, marginalised young people and children. You have a, a conference that you're part of organizing uh, on youth, hope, and, and rage. Um, could you say a little bit about that, about the, the theme and where it's located? And if people are interested, if they're going to be in Australia, it's something they should see, that type of thing. Okay, so it's a two-day conference. It's an invitational conference in terms of participants. We put out a call for expressions for people who are wanting to submit uh, and present we hope to get an edited collection out of it. It's in uh, early December in Melbourne, and it's called Young People and the Politics of Outrage and Hope. Mm-hmm. The brief that people responded to tried to capture some of the significant issues that young people face in the first decade and a half of the 21st century, you know, the ongoing war on terror, the, the wars fought under that banner. Uh, mass migrations, mass, mass movements of refugees, uh, global financial crisis, uh, the large-scale austerity programs that have been instituted in a lot of OECD economies as a consequence of that crisis being reimagined as a crisis of sovereign debt rather than a crisis of corrupt bankers. So we tried to shed light on what we thought were some of the, the significant forces around the world shaping young people's existence at, at this point in time situating that in young people's own responses to that through things like Occupy and We Are the 99% or the Spanish Indignados or the Greek Citizens Protest Movement, uh, the the riots in, in UK cities in 2011. Lots of young people around the world are now encumbered with significant amounts of debt with little chance to, or option of seeing themselves being able to repay that and support to families and young people who've been slashed and the most vulnerable pay for the, the sins of the wealthiest. So there should be outrage, our argument is. There should be outrage. But one of the things that possibly should come from outrage is, is, is hope because hope is about imagining something other than what it is at this point in time. So we've had significant contributions from a number of people around in different contexts and, and we think it would be a really interesting uh, conference in itself in terms of the things that people are talking about. It's it's a very timely. I just think about uh, Ferguson, Missouri, or yep. you know the things that happened in Baltimore. But not just that. I mean that is there's almost a hope there. Those are terrible events, but there's a there's a hopeful side there to that outrage. Yep. Uh, yep. The degree that it's participation and mobilization and the identification of structures of inequality and the need for change, even though we might be frustrated uh, by the dimensions of one part of the discourse or another, but there are other sides of it which are less hopeful but are equally important. In the high school that's one block from my home here in London, Ontario, I don't know if it was two or three kids joined, uh, uh, they, they were killed, they joined a uh, radical Islamic movement and were part of the bombing of an airport in in Africa and were killed, you know. And uh, and these events, these organizations are transnational and they're drawing kids, young people, young men mostly, but not entirely, from all over the world to uh, some of the most desperate situations in the world. And in, and in some ways, I think they're there must be a sense of, of hope or desire for change, for participation by these young persons, no matter how violent and misdirected from my point of view, 
or someone else's point of view. Exactly. And, and, and I think, yeah, again, incredibly problematic course of action when you see young people doing that. And it's certainly the issue, an issue in Australia as well, the number of people who have um, headed to, to Syria or Iraq or wherever to join. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of, part of that, that conference is, is trying to open up the conversations about an ongoing assault on what it be, means to be a young person from a particular background. Yeah. Again, we run into difficulties in, in how it is that we describe that. So, you know, is neoliberalism the focus of our attention? Is capitalism the focus of our, our attention? It's religion concerns, a whole variety of concerns. And I think that's one of the, one of the challenges of trying to do the sort of work that we might want to do in that context is being able to develop and deploy a vocabulary that can capture the complexity. You know, maybe I could shift. I provided you with the essay that I'm writing as part of this episode for CHC, and I have incident in a main prison involving an inmate named Paul Slosher and a practice called the cage that was used as a, a way of uh, handling conflict between the boys at uh, South Oak Cliff High School in Dallas, Texas. Uh-huh. And I'm interested in, in hearing what your thoughts are about these situations in the, in the wider context of youth, hope, rage, or... Maybe I'd, I'd answer that by talking about uh, a project that I'm trying to, to work with in... Uh, with colleagues in Australia at the moment called uh, The Wicked Problem of Young Men, Masculinity, Alcohol and Violence. And I don't know if you're aware of that concept of the wicked problem. The wicked problem, you can't put your finger on, you can't tame them easily. That's right, that's right. And and so people who are listening to this may not have heard that term before, but it comes from uh, a paper in the late 70s that had been taken up in a number of other contexts. So a tame problem is something that's we can readily define it in the first place. Yeah. Uh, and by being able to readily define what the problem is, we can more easily suggest solutions and or interventions. A wicked problem, we can't even come up with a definition of what to include in the problem or exclude from the problem or how it is that we work with it. And as a consequence, any solution, if there is such a thing, in inverted commas, scare marks, uh, is itself incredibly problematic. So one of the things in that project, and, and why we've termed it the wicked problem, is that it comes back to the ways in which health promotion agencies see the problem of young men and violence and alcohol and the relationships between those. Young men get drunk, become violent, and we've got to do something about that. And the intervention usually is an education campaign about, in Australia, for instance, take the form of... Uh, look after your mates, don't get drunk. So there'll be TV ads, web campaigns, a whole variety of things that will take up that message. And one of the things that we're trying to include in that discussion is that that removes things like commodified and glorified violence in global sports contexts. The total war and and, uh, capabilities of nation states, the ways in which wherever there's a problem, we preface it with a war on drugs, a war on terror. And at this point in time, we've commodified and glorified violence in ways probably, you know, people would say, oh, yeah, but the Romans did this in the Colosseum and stuff like that. But it's 
it's ubiquitous in a in a 24/7 always on always connected uh, digital media space. Violence is such a part of our lives, and so what we want to do there is to widen out what it is that we think about when we talk talk about young people, young men, alcohol and violence. To talk about a culture of violence that takes different forms, and you know, it's okay to watch cage fighting. Exactly. It's okay to participate in cage fighting. The issue is if you're at a on the street on a Saturday night and you're drunk and you hit somebody or get involved in a fight, that's not okay. The Saturday night incident is fundamentally shaped and influenced. Even if we don't adopt the cause and effect argument, somebody watches violent videos, it makes them violent. We don't have to go there. Don't have to make that relationship. Although stakeholders will want us to make that relationship because that's evidence. Show us the evidence that says there's a direct correlation. Well, we don't have to imagine it as a direct correlation. We just have to imagine there are global cultures of violence. Those cultures of violence emerge and shape, emerge in and shape a whole variety of things that are removed from the telecast cage fight, mm-hmm. are removed from you know the use of drones to remotely bomb uh, people who we who look like they're of combat age and are male. Or I wonder if all we have to do, because that point about causality is is one that I confront all the time, and as I'm listening to you, I'm very familiar with that. It seems to me one thing that I would say is that we could also turn it around. Think about what is happening in a cage fight, or think about what a soldier is being asked to do in a room in Arizona flying a drone that's halfway around the world. Mm -hmm. In fact... It's an extraordinary feat of discipline that when the whistle is blown, you stop hitting someone in the face who is hitting you in the face, Mm -hmm. in the cage. And it's an extraordinary feat of discipline that a soldier totally disconnected from the ground there and the people and the environment in, let's say, Iraq will push a button as he's told, and there are some very graphic documentaries about this, even though he he said moments earlier, that looks like a boy that just came out of that. No, it's not. That was a dog. And boom. It's impossible to be surprised at violence and to pretend the problem of power or the violent use of power is located in the person rather than the situation. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, and I think that's an interesting, uh, an interesting perspective and an interesting angle on on some dimensions of of, of that issue. Foucault used the concept of, of the training of soldiers as one way to talk about what he was talking about in terms of discipline. All those all those myriad little events and practices standing to attention. Mm-hmm. Drills, all those things that will make you into a particular form of person. And and in the case of the military, that's an extreme version of discipline, if we can use the word extreme, but it's a particular version that has a particular aim in mind to make a soldier. Mm -hmm. But understanding schooling as being partly and, and to a large extent about discipline, about producing young people who are capable of recognizing themselves and governing themselves in particular ways. The young people who are at risk in that context, those who don't conform to those demands of discipline for whatever reason, are unable to, choose not to, fight, resist, 
contest. And then even even those who have developed that form of docility, as Foucault would talk about, there's an unruly body, mind and soul at play there, always. Yeah. Discipline is never complete and or universal and forever. And so violence is one of the ways to imagine it is that discipline breaks down at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I would not imply that any, any of the actors have to be conscious of exactly what is happening to them in a, a situation where there's high levels of unemployment, where there, where there isn't a lot of opportunity. Continuing with the expectation that the disciplinary regimes are going to be able to get people to control space, time, and bodies. Is an unreasonable expectation. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that we've seen in the last uh, decade and a half, in particular, and, and maybe even longer. We put young people in prison in greater numbers than ever. We criminalise more and more activities and make them punishable by prison terms. There, there is, in some respects, an assault or a war on those who who do not conform who don't want to conform, who say, well, look, you know, the story you're telling me here, study hard, go to university, get a degree, work hard, it, it doesn't make sense to you because that's not my life. I don't see that anywhere. And I also see that people who have conformed to that narrative, that, that dominant story about what it is to be young and growing up. I graduate with a degree and hundreds, well, tens of thousand dollars of debt and, and no job. And it's particularly in North America where... Uh in Canada, the solution to every problem seems to be, in the United States, this has historically been the case as well, um, but the Canadian figures are even higher for participation in uh, post-secondary education right now. For um, So if you try to get 42, 43, 45% of the cohort to go to post-secondary education, in Ontario, uh, we've increased uh, compulsory education in high school from age 16 to 18, trying to force people to go. You and, and I and the people listening to this, uh, we've all devoted our lives to education. We, we of course, believe in, in education and in, we've participated in it. But the madness of thinking that a solution to the problems that are confronting young people in terms of exclusion and marginalization is just forcing them to go to school. Yes, more, more school. What's, if more school is the answer, what's the problem? We all know that you know, without those sorts of qualifications, you are at risk. Yeah. But, but, but the, the answer isn't necessarily forcing more and more young people to be in places that you know they find completely irrelevant for longer periods of their life. And this really is a wicked problem because it's not clear what, what the alternatives are around this. I mean, I could sort of wish for there to be less credentialism. And I think in that context of a wicked problem with no easy solution. We make individuals responsible. The selfless enterprise is a, is a self, a form of being a person that is autonomous, that is choice-making, that is prudential and is risk-aware and responsible. So because the state can't provide the solutions, certainly corporations don't because they have self-interested base in terms of as their shareholders. So in face of those wicked problems, who the contradictions and paradoxes of global capitalism are left to the individual to sort out. So those young people who are best equipped to do that will survive in some way, shape or form. Larger and larger numbers of young people 
in coming gen- generations, particularly when we see the ways in which austerity and the welfare state is being reconfigured and markets are becoming, education has become much more marketised and commodified. You know, generational debt, we can't pass on generational debt as a, as a state. We can't have state debt levels that in, impoverish coming generations apparently, but we can individualise the debt for higher education. We can shift it from the state to individuals and have them graduating with forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars of debt and that's okay. So there's a movement to individualise the responsibility for the management of those wicked problems. Sort it out and you'll sort it out by conforming and developing skills and abilities and engaging in lifelong learning every time you retrench, go and remake yourself. Um, and again, I think we see around the world that particularly in the liberal democracies, the state is prepared to lock up and criminalise more and more of the population. When that population doesn't conform to those demands and isn't willing to accept that as an individual, they're responsible for the management of a biography in, in contexts where so many things have changed, a biography are beyond our control, beyond anybody's control, because they're wicked. What would you say to those who would say that the idea of a wicked problem can only lead to immobilization or despair? Yeah, but I, we, can't, we can't develop responses unless we imagine the problems in particular ways. Just because, again, and that's the thing about by saying something's a wicked problem and you know, the, the outcomes are unclear and what it is that we should do is unclear, it doesn't mean that we stop acting. It's just that we need, quite possibly, to think about the problem differently. You know, So the problem of higher education, how, how to fund it, the solution at the moment in a lot of countries is to privatise the cost of that. In lots of other countries, the state continues to provide free higher education. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so the problem looks different. When I was in Copenhagen at the Journal of Youth Studies Conference, a lot of discussion about the, the, the Nordic model of the welfare state that is not just about payment of unemployment benefits or pensions or whatever. It's how you imagine education and labour markets and a whole variety of things and what role the state plays in that, what roles and responsibilities the individual has. They have a completely different way of understanding the problem and of responding to it and they have different outcomes as a consequence. So, yeah, it is a wicked problem, but it takes on particular characteristics in the sort of individualised uh, neoliberal democracies of North America, of, of the Anglo-speaking world. And, and the problem with a lot of the conversation is that the welfare state is constructed as a safety net. Safety net. It's not a safety net. It is, it's an enabler that enables people to participate in those uh, labour markets and conduct family lives and do all of those things that are held up as narratives that structure our society. If you're ill-housed, if you're ill, if you're unemployed, it's very difficult to to conform in those circumstances. But we individualise that inability to conform and say, well, it's as a result of your own actions or or your inability to um, ensure yourself, you know, it's your problem. There's other ways to imagine those wicked problems. Well, Peter, I really appreciate your spending uh, your morning with me. As I said, thanks for the opportunity. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. S-H-C-Y 
www.thebibleshow.org.